You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, a senior fellow in the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. Several countries have plans for new space launches to the moon. It has been nearly five decades since humans landed on the moon, and NASA, along with other nations, are preparing to return to the moon and ultimately have missions to Mars as well. All these developments raise interesting questions about the future of space exploration and how to use that knowledge to improve life on Earth. To discuss these important questions, we are pleased to be joined by a distinguished expert. Tom Colvin is a senior policy advisor in the Office of Technology, Policy, and Strategy at NASA. He is a physicist and an engineer uh, who applies scientific knowledge to space policy. Tom, welcome to our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. Thanks so much. Really excited to be here and to chat with you. So I'd like to start by learning more about your background. How did you get interested in space and then end up at NASA? Oh, man, I guess uh, I don't know how long you have. Uh, You know, I I started as being interested in physics, right? Uh, and I was, you know, simulating subatomic particles as an undergrad and kind of thought like this, this isn't going to have, you know, the big life impact uh, on society that I'd like to see. And I didn't know how to do any better. I didn't know what else to do. So I, uh, on a whim, ran away to Thailand <laughs> and was teaching English and trying to, you know, find myself. And while I was over there, I realized that getting people into space, not just astronauts, but like regular people like you and me and my grandma to be in space was the most important thing that I felt like that I could do and work on. And so I resolved to find a way to contribute somehow. I went to grad school for my PhD in aerospace engineering, and then through a series of science policy fellowships through IEEE, which is a Professional Society for Engineers and AAAS, which is a professional society for the broader um, space and engineering community. I did some fellowships around uh, DC. Eventually, I landed at a place called the Science and Technology Policy Institute, where we were the FFRDC for the White House, Office of Science and Technology Policy. And so an FFRDC is like an organization that's a nonprofit, but it's got a special relationship with their government sponsor. And there I was privileged to work with Dr. Pavia Lal, who kind of taught me everything I needed to know about how to think about space. And um, when she became the associate administrator for technology policy and strategy at NASA, she brought me over and that's how I I wound up here at NASA. So I don't know, it's a combination of, of passion for getting normal people into space and uh, 
honestly being a little bit lucky that I found some of the opportunities that I did. Uh, but that was a great explanation of your uh, background. Sounds like it was an interesting uh, journey to get to this uh, point with uh, NASA. And of course, now there's a lot of exciting things going on in your agency. So the last lunar landing was 50 years ago. And now NASA's Artemis program plans to bring humans back to the moon. Why is a new lunar landing important for us? Right. It's a good question. So this, uh, we're, we're aiming for our seventh crewed lunar landing. We've already done this um, six times. So why again, right? Um, I think the, the first point maybe to make is that we shouldn't get too caught up on the idea of just landing on the moon uh, you know, one or two landings, because we have a longer term vision. So as our administrator, um, Bill Nelson said, we re- this time we return to the moon to stay, to learn and to live, and ultimately enabling our goal to send humans to Mars and beyond. So this is the big vision that we're driving towards, not just thinking about, you know, the next landing. And it's important uh, for us, the United States, But it's also important for the world. As a part of Artemis, we're making sure that other countries are there with us. So, for example, we have a Canadian astronaut on Artemis II. We're also making sure that everyone who dreams of traveling to the moon or beyond can see themselves in space exploration. And we've committed to sending the first woman and the first person of color to the moon. So there's a lot of things that are different here about our big, broad vision and these things we're talking about here are just the beginning. So a Pew Opinion Survey of the American public found that sending astronauts to the moon and Mars does not rank high on the list of public priorities. So how can you explain to the general public why space discovery should be an important priority? A few, maybe before jumping into fully answering the question, a few extra tidbits on that on that Pew survey. So 72% of people said that it is essential for the United States to continue to be a world leader in space exploration. Moreover, 80% said that the space station, where we have uh, U.S. and international crew, has been a good investment for the country. So there is good support for space exploration and human spaceflight. Now, things like monitoring key parts of Earth's climate and monitoring for asteroids that could hit the Earth, these were seen as the top priorities for NASA in the survey. And even though fewer people ranked sending astronauts to the moon and Mars as a quote-unquote top priority, we still see more than 50% support for these topics when including those who said it's important to do these things, just not the top priority. And historically speaking, support for human spaceflight has hovered around 50% ever since the early days of Apollo. So to my eye, the Pew results here aren't indicating any big shifts in public sentiment on the topic. But to your to your like real question, which I, I, I sort of interpret as what's the value proposition here? Why, why do we go? Um, and there's basically three big reasons. There's science there's inspiration, and there's national posture. These are the reasons why we care about space exploration. So when it comes to science, 
there's so much that we can learn about the nature of the universe on the moon and on Mars, and while we're in transit to those destinations. And possibly the most obvious thing is just learning about ourselves and how we can learn to thrive in the harsh environment of space. Interestingly, this th that very topic was identified as important or a top priority by 79% of the people in the Pew survey. Um, conducting planetary science campaigns on the moon and Mars will also tell us a lot about the formation of our solar system and the origins of life uh, he, you know, in, our, in our solar system. And interestingly, the far side of the moon is also kind of the optimal place for performing certain kinds of radio astronomy. So the far side you know, of the moon is never facing the earth. And so the moon is always shielding that area from all the possible radio emissions that are coming from our planet. It's a pristinely quiet environment that may have immense value to astronomy. So that's, you know, just some of the science values associated with, with going back. There's also, you know, inspiration. One of the things that I love about working in space is whether I'm at a party or talking to a new parent while I'm picking up my kid from school, like everyone from all backgrounds, their eyes just light up when they hear that I work on space or that I work at NASA. They have so many questions. And there's just something about space that's deeply entrenched in our human psyche that just draws us in. And, you know, to Apollo, Apollo trained and inspired generations of students to become engineers and scientists so they could pursue careers doing visionary work. Why? Well, because Apollo showed how we could take a seemingly impossible goal and make it happen. It was so powerful in our minds that it's become a metaphor. You've, you've probably heard the term like moonshot, and it's used to inspire confidence to solve and address other audacious goals, right? We got a cancer moonshot. We talk about commercial fusion energy as a moonshot. And so too with Artemis, we will inspire people to take careers in STEM and then use those skills to literally help send people to the moon and Mars and maybe even beyond and to tackle a host of other societal problems that may seem impossible. So that's science and inspiration. And then when it comes to our national posture, uh, there are sort of two dimensions here. There's economic and norms. So for economics, you know, by its very nature, achieving this vision of space exploration requires us to build and establish national strength in science and technology and innovation. And this in turn, uh, generates economic growth for us as a country and also improves our global competitiveness with benefits that go far beyond the space sector. So for example, the discipline of software engineering was created as part of the development of the guidance and navigation systems that were used on Apollo spacecraft. Um, and then also what we'll call like norms. Uh, there's many U.S. companies and governments from around the globe that are making plans for operating at the moon and Mars. And NASA and its partners need to take a leading role when it comes to figuring out what responsible norms of behavior look like as places like the moon start to get a little bit more crowded. And we can only do this by leading through example. So those are sort of the high level enduring national interests um, that we're pursuing with Artemis. No, I think all of that is right. It is an exciting time. And I know just over the last couple of decades, like the advances in scientific knowledge from the new space-based telescopes has been enormous. Just 
the extent of new understanding we have about our solar system, as well as the universe in general, has really exploded. Uh, so it is an exciting time. And I know Artemis is the first program since Apollo to have the support of back-to-back presidential administrations. What are the factors that made the Artemis program possible at this particular moment? So the this question, if you'll indulge me in a little tangent, there have been a number of attempts to do this in the past, right? So why what's up with those? Um, the first thing that I think of is a book uh, called Space Flight and the Myth of Presidential Leadership by Roger Launius and Howard McCurdy. And if people would like to explore the historical motivations and attempts at these big civil space programs in the past, it's a wonderful analysis. And I'd say that it shows that presidential backing um, at the highest level is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for this stuff to happen. Um, and, you know, when people think of the Apollo program, they view it as a thing that President Kennedy challenged us to do. And then through presidential willpower, he made it happen. And this is sort of a top-down model of organizational behavior that the leader is in total control. And because that's why many people think Apollo happened, they also believe that all we need to do uh, to achieve new space mega projects is to get a similar level of commitment from the president or the White House. And of course, true top-down leadership is uh, like command and control leadership is rare in large organizations. And organizational theory gives us many other models to understand how organizations actually behave. Um, sorry to throw out like another book review or, or recommendation, but my favorite book on that subject of organizational behavior, especially applied to government operations, is Essence of Decision by Graham Allison. I really recommend that book for uh, government policy wonks. But anyways, Launius and McCurdy, they investigate whether this top-down model of decision-making applies to these large civil space endeavors. And the answer is basically that it didn't really apply to Apollo and it doesn't really apply elsewhere either. So for instance, shortly after announcing Apollo, Kennedy tried to back out. He, he tried to see if we could cooperate with the Soviets rather than you know beat them to the moon. And partially this was because Apollo was predicated on a Soviet scare that turned out not to be true. There was no missile gap, no bomber gap, and the Soviet economy was much weaker than the popular press was reporting. These events and revelations reduced tensions with the Soviets and was codified in the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which then tamped down scares of militarizing space. And after all these events, there was little remaining pressure to beat the Soviets, and the lunar program was expensive. Neither Kennedy nor Johnson wanted to pay the full cost and started looking for ways to avoid avoid the race. And, you know, I mentioned this quick anecdote just to illustrate that even during Apollo, presidential leadership was lukewarm for most of the program, and there was never any serious support for planning a post-Apollo mission. So now you mentioned, I think, that there have been some other plans that we've tried to make as a nation, and they've fallen through. And so the ones that come to mind are uh, those proposed to the Nixon administration by NASA Administrator Thomas Paine, and then the Space Exploration Initiative under Bush Senior. Senior. So by going through these examples, this is going to kind of help us understand why what we're doing now is different. So Administrator Payne exemplified the sort of single-minded focus on getting the White House's approval for 
for these big plans. He was proposing a lunar base, a massive space station, and crew to Mars by 1981. And he was pushing very hard for President Nixon and the Vice President Agnew to buy in to these efforts, but didn't really attend to making concrete, broadly defensible plans or being responsive to the Bureau of Budgets, which was the precursor agency to the Office of Management and Budget. And so the, his example shows that if you don't have White House support, you can't get White House support unless you have a solid plan and it's tied to enduring national interests. And then the next big attempt at Moon and Mars was the Space Exploration Initiative during the first Bush administration. This idea had presidential support, but uh, it's, not, uh, it's a necessary but not sufficient condition for success. So NASA's implementation plan for SEI, the Space uh, uh, Exploration Initiative, was not well received by White House or Congress or other important stakeholders. And ultimately, that led us to sort of a compromise effort that is colloquially called go as you pay, which basically means Congress was going to give us some money and then we'll figure out what to do to fit that budget. It was not very strategic. And then in the 2010s, this morphed into a capability-based framework for space exploration, which is where NASA decided to focus on building capabilities that were like destination agnostic and go anywhere that leadership decided to choose, you know, moon, Mars, asteroids, wherever, but didn't really account for the specifics of any of those destinations. It was, again, kind of a, what can we build with the money we've got? Not very strategic, not really a plan or tied to enduring national interests. So what's different now? Well, <laughs> why are we going to succeed this time? Because we have a plan and that plan connects all of our development efforts that we pursue back to the main three societal benefits that we spoke about earlier, science, inspiration, and national posture. These represent the enduring national interests that give any government program, space or not, longevity across administrations. And for each of these enduring national interests, we have a set of vetted objectives uh, that is over 60 of them that must be accomplished to provide the benefits that we expect from space exploration. And our plan has been created with broad participation throughout NASA, the rest of the U.S. government, inputs from the broader American society. And if someone asks, hey, NASA, why are you doing this specific thing? We can trace the benefits of that action back to its overall contribution to our exploration architecture and further on to the benefits to society. And if we run into budget issues, which are inevitable, we're not left wondering, well, what should we build now? Our plan allows us to prioritize among our efforts and maximize our potential subject to constraints like budget while still ensuring that we achieve our national goals. So it's different this time because we have a plan, a strategy. And the second way that it's different is that this time we have partners. There's a lot of international interest in lunar and Martian exploration that did not previously exist. There may be over 100 missions into cislunar space within the next decade, much of which is international. And the United States has 27 international partners in this endeavor uh, already through the Artemis Accords. Um, commercial interest is pretty high as well. Companies are putting a lot of their own money into the development of lunar capabilities because they believe there may be a market for lunar goods and services. So there's just a tremendous amount of momentum from all corners of society that never really existed previously. So sorry, that was a long answer, but I felt like we need to give it the whole context about why it's different this time. 
No, that was a great answer. Just uh, learning about the history and how things have come together uh, now to generate this plan, uh, which uh, will uh, hopefully put NASA in a position to uh, execute that plan very successfully. You mentioned all the international interest. And of course, just before we started taping this, we learned that India just successfully uh, put a uh, unmanned lander on the moon, on the South Pole. I'm just curious your personal reaction to that achievement on the part of uh, the Indian government. Right. Uh, I mean, I am, you know, no pun intended, over the moon for uh, the the engineers at ISRO, uh, the Indian Space Agency, who, who made this happen. It's an incredible achievement. And um, actually, I don't know how much I want to say, but I feel like I'm about to start to cry. I was... I was walking my kid to the bus stop. I had been watching the live stream uh, on my phone. And as we're like walking down the street, you know, <clears throat> the lander is at, you know, 200 meters, 150 meters, you know, 150. And like, it was just amazing. It's like, it's like telling my kid from where we are to the end of the street, that's how far India is from landing on the moon. From the top of that house to the ground, that's how far India is from landing on the moon. And then like when you see the claps and you get the, you know, the touchdown confirmed, I mean, it was just like I had to, had to take a moment before I, before I got to the bus stop. So I, you know, didn't seem too emotional, but it was a, it was a really powerful moment. I told everyone at the bus stop, I texted all my friends. Uh, it's, a, it's a really exciting time for, for space exploration. And of course, we should note, it's not so easy actually to land on the moon. Like many countries have tried and failed to do this. Uh, just last week, I think it was uh, Russia had uh, uh, put a lander up and it apparently crashed. So their effort was uh, not successful. I'm curious, what role should partnerships with the private sector play in space exploration? So, for example, how does NASA work with firms such as SpaceX and Blue Origins? I think first up, there's kind of like a broader question, right? So when we talk about working with, with private companies and commercial, um, I'd, I'd kind of like to draw a quick distinction between NASA engaging with a private company and NASA or the government engaging with a company commercially. So uh, private companies have built nearly every single piece of space hardware that you know the United States has flown, right? You you may look at the Apollo hardware and see government hardware, but it was basically all built by private companies. Uh, you know, like the lunar module, you see a picture of that sitting on the surface of the moon. That was designed and built by Grumman Aircraft Engineering Corporation. Um, you know, one of the companies that eventually got merged and acquired into what's now Northrop Grumman. So it was built by a private company, but was it built commercially? No. It was designed for a specific set of government requirements, and the thing that came out the other end, while amazing and inspirational and world-changing, wasn't really like commercially relevant. So what makes something commercial, right? That's I would say it's when it's developed subject to marketplace incentives. So rather than meeting a requirement, uh, the product is trying to that's being developed is trying to provide a function that multiple customers may want to purchase or use and there's also competition for those customers so the company you know is required to innovate to ensure that their product is providing something that the competition can't and then the presence of these commercial incentives these market incentives 
whether it's an acquisition or a partnership or however we engage, that's where we see the big benefits associated with private and commercial development. And, you know, within a single private company, some products may be commercially developed and some may not. It all depends on the incentives placed on the development of, you know, the, the specific system in question, right? So you could have a, an aerospace company that builds a bespoke rocket for a government customer. It's highly tailored to meeting the needs of that government mission, but it won't have any commercial relevance. While another part of that same company may be building an aircraft that's meant to be sold commercially to a diverse set of customers. So just want to kind of start by keeping in mind that we see the most benefits of working with private companies when they're incentivized to innovate through exposure to market conditions or putting some of their own capital at risk, not just complying with government specifications. And so, uh, you know, you'd asked about uh, Blue Origin and SpaceX in particular. I, I don't want to comment on the, the specifics of uh, their operations, except to say that one of the ways that we are engaging with them and many other companies in our um, return to the moon are through certain types of um, cost sharing agreements, if you will. So for instance, uh, NASA has a funding mechanism called a tipping point. And to, to apply for and receive a tipping point, the company has to propose uh, the development of a product or capability that is relevant to NASA's needs, but is also relevant, demonstrably relevant to a potential current or emerging commercial market. And one of the ways that uh, that relevance that commercial relevance is demonstrated is that companies have to kick in their own private capital a certain percentage of the overall award so they've got to put literally their own skin in the game i guess it's not literally their skin but they've literally got to put their own capital uh at risk um to to develop these things as a show of confidence that um there is going to be a commercial market there so this is just kind of like one of the ways in which we are more broadly engaging with commercial companies, private companies, to also layer in these commercial incentives for them to do amazing things and innovate and hopefully also reduce costs associated with uh, traveling to, living, and working in space. So one of the other issues that is coming up in the space exploration area is space debris. And there is a Pew Research study that found seven in 10 Americans anticipate space debris becoming a major problem for our progress in space. So I'm just curious, how severe is that problem and what do you think should be done about it? It's a problem that is definitely top of mind for most of the space community at the moment. And, you know, uh, as, as my, my, former, my former boss and still friend, uh, Pavi, used to say, like, if, if you've ever wondered if the sky is falling, you're not totally wrong. So just in January of this year, right, a retired NASA satellite weighing about uh, 2,500 kilograms reentered the Earth's atmosphere. And a few months earlier, a Chinese rocket had experienced an uncontrolled reentry. And... Beyond just re-entries, things literally falling out of the sky uh, that have caught our attention, there's also growing congestion 
in space as well. So you may know there have been several close calls uh, with the International Space Station, which has led us to conduct three collision avoidance maneuvers in 2022 um, to avoid pieces of Russian debris. Uh, and indeed, in, in, in 2022, NASA also executed or assisted in the execution of 18 collision avoidance maneuvers uh, by robotic spacecraft. These were also to avoid debris. And, you know, we're not the only country with concerns. Uh, China has previously raised the alarm that U.S. spacecraft uh, were coming too close to their uh, crewed space station for their comfort. And, you know, these events just kind of highlight the risks that are posed by orbital debris, which is, uh, for definitional purposes, I consider that any human-made space object that's orbiting Earth that no longer serves any useful purpose, right? And so since the beginning of the space age, debris has been increasing, right? In number and the total mass that's up there. And it's just, it's continuing to grow. There's currently around 30,000 objects in space that are debris, uh, or sorry, that are large enough to be regularly tracked. So this is debris and some other active spacecraft. Um, and, you know, these debris may be anything from massive upper stages, like 9,000 kilogram uh, rocket bodies, to satellites that failed prematurely in their orbits, or even satellites that just ended their missions normally and um, are naturally re-entering um, Earth's atmosphere over time because spacecraft orbits decay. Their, or their altitudes get less and less because there is still a little bit of atmospheric drag up there. Um, but then there's also up to 100 million pieces of debris that are in space that's too small to track. Uh, so we don't really know their orbits, but they can still damage or destroy a spacecraft if uh, there's an impact. And because we can't track them, we're basically flying blind to, to this debris. Um, you know, you ask what should be done, and I don't have an answer yet. NASA doesn't have an answer yet, but I can give some considerations. Uh, one thing that many in the community want to do is clean up debris. Uh, it's also called debris remediation. And while it seems obvious, yes, of course, you know, we should clean up our debris, it's actually not that clear what to do. Um, and one of the reasons why is that the utility of debris remediation, of debris cleanup, is kind of uncertain. So, you know, again, any sort of method for cleaning up debris is an action. I'll call this like an action that you'd perform on a piece of debris to reduce the risk that it poses to others. And the benefits associated with doing this kind of cleanup are usually discussed on really long timescales like 100 years, 200 years. And it's very difficult to incentivize near-term action or know what to do now when we're thinking about stuff that's so far in the future. And it's also hard to know what ways of cleaning up debris should we prioritize. You know, there's many different types of debris, you know, 9,000 kilogram rocket bodies all the way down to, you know, millimeter size pieces of debris, flecks of steel and aluminum and paint chips and stuff. So you've got so many different types of debris and there's so many different ways to clean it up. Usually when we think about cleaning up debris, we think about going and grabbing it, 
you know, like a robotic arm or throwing a net around it and then tugging the debris to a lower orbit so that way it re-enters uh, Earth's atmosphere. But there's other things that you can do as well. You could uh, just nudge debris out of the way. So if you have two big things that are about to collide, um, before they collide, just push one a little bit so that way it misses the other. And there's lots of ways you can do that with like lasers or dust or rocket exhaust or nanotugs. So many different ways to just move debris around up there to make them more safe. And then also there's the ability to reuse or recycle debris. A lot of the technologies for that are um, pretty immature. Although, interestingly, it's the only really kind of debris remediation that we have already seen happen. So back in, I think, 1984, when we were still operating the space shuttle, uh, the space shuttle went and grabbed the satellite Westar 6. It had failed to deploy to geo-orbit and was still just hanging out, being useless in LEO, low Earth orbit. And astronauts grabbed it. They put it in the, the back of the space shuttle and they returned it to Earth. Engineers, you know, unpacked it, hit it with a wrench to fix it up, and then we sold it to AsiaSat, who relaunched it and used it successfully to generate revenue for many years. So we've actually done uh, in-space recycling before. So anyway, sorry, those are the different ways that we could try to um, clean up debris. You could remove it, you could move it, or you could reuse it. Um, but then we get to other fundamental questions too. There's a lot of economic uncertainties, like how much would it cost to do any of these things? And what are the benefits? Would it be worth it to pay that to clean up a piece of debris? How much is a piece of debris worth anyways? And then there's the thorny question, the thorniest question of who should pay. So a few months ago, I published a report that does a cost benefit analysis of various options for cleaning up orbital debris in low earth orbit, LEO. And this is the most rigorous study of its kind ever undertaken, and it's changing how NASA and the space community thinks about orbital debris. So, for example, um, my study was the first in the literature to quantify in dollars the risks posed by orbital debris to all other U.S. space operators um, by focusing on the financial effects imposed on space operators. This is a new way of thinking about the problem, a little bit of a paradigm shift, because all previous analyses tended to measure only proxies for risk to spacecraft, like the total number of debris in space or the total mass of debris in space. But there are two interesting consequences of reframing this away from just how much debris is there to how is it financially affecting operators? The first is I found that though the number of tracked debris in space is increasing, the financial risks to operators, to spacecraft operators, is not necessarily increasing at the same rate. Debris that we can track are dangerous and annoying for satellite operators for sure, but we found that most satellite operators don't incur much cost from dodging debris. And further, the increase in debris has pushed operators to have to modernize their operations to bring in a lot of automation. And so even though the number of debris has gone up, for some of them, their costs of dodging debris has gone down in some cases due to these new efficiencies. A second 
consequence of directly measuring risk is that, and measured in dollars, is that it opens up new solutions for cleaning up debris. So if we frame cleanup efforts around a proxy for risk measured by like, you know, the total number of debris in space, well, surprise, surprise, the only cleanup option is to remove debris to reduce its number because that's how you measured it. But uh, we found that the most efficient way to reduce risk to operators may be to simply nudge debris away from potential collisions. So this is a, it's a new way of thinking. The most effective and sustainable thing to do may be to let most of that debris in space just deorbit naturally while ensuring that it doesn't hit anything on the way down. Now there's some types of debris that we're going to have to go and grab and pull down because they're very, very big. They'll survive re-entry and it may put people and property on the ground at risk. So for those, you probably got to grab them and then make sure that you steer them into the ocean. But for a lot of the debris, we may be able to just nudge debris out of the way in time. I also looked at another method for cleaning up uh, small debris, which the space community has generally thought was too difficult to do. So for every piece of debris in space that we can see, these like trackable pieces of debris, there's about 27 times more debris that we can't see in the one to 10 centimeter range. And while the probability of being struck by this debris is still relatively low, as I said before, spacecraft are flying blind with respect to these centimeter-sized particles. And if they get struck, uh, it's probably going to end your mission. So we identified a few options to find and remove these pieces of debris that may be very cost-effective for reducing risk to spacecraft operators. It's not impossible, and these findings have made us rethink the problem of orbital debris and the solutions to address it. And I suppose one final thing to get a little bit broader context is that that study was just looking at how to clean it up, how to clean up debris. But there's a lot of other things that you could do to reduce the risks to spacecraft operators. So for instance, you could simply do a better job of not creating debris in the first place. That's called debris mitigation. And so the things that you might do there are shield your spacecraft better. So that way, if it gets hit by a piece of debris, it doesn't blow up or become basically decommissioned and turn into a piece of debris itself. Alternatively, right now, we have what's called a 25-year rule. So after your spacecraft ends its mission, uh, the, the, the rules, the best practices are, you need to make sure that your spacecraft leaves the space environment in about 25 years or less. And uh, potentially reducing the amount of time that we allow spacecraft to naturally decay after they're done with their mission could also potentially reduce the amount of debris that's in space effectively. And then, so in addition to not just creating debris, you know, by design mitigation, we can also do a better job of tracking the debris that's up there. So there's a lot of uncertainties associated with when things will collide, even if it's the, you know, big pieces of debris that we're talking about. Um, the uncertainties associated with our measurements can be in hundreds of meters, but this leads us to have a pretty high false positive rate. So probably for every like thousand collisions that we predict uh, may happen, in reality, probably only like one or two of them would have actually happened. But we're still doing collision avoidance maneuvers based on, you know, the, the total number of predicted collisions.
So doing a better job of tracking the debris that we can already see, and also maybe even being able to track debris that's not currently tracked, that we're flying blind to. So there are all of these other methods that we could pursue, better mitigating debris, better tracking debris, better remediating debris, cleaning it up. And we don't yet know how much of each to do. I think everyone in the community agrees we need to do all of it, but there are still some fundamental economic uncertainties associated with the costs and the effectiveness of these different methods. And uh, we're waiting to figure out what the right portfolio balance is among these. And I say we're waiting. Um, we're, I'm actually finishing up a study on this at the moment. So I don't have results yet. I don't know exactly when that'll be, when it'll be ready for prime time, but it's something that NASA is, is actively thinking about. Well, it's great that both you and NASA are thinking creatively about this whole issue of space debris. And you're right, there's just so much stuff out there, in part because so many countries are being successful at launching things, it is creating uh, this uh, need for uh, cleanup. So I want to thank Tom for sharing his thoughts with us today. At Brookings, we write regularly about space and digital technologies. Uh, you can find uh, more information on our Brookings Tech Tank blog located at brookings.edu. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings. <laughs>